Welcome to Point Two Law Review. My name is John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we are here on our journey through the Nebraska Court of Appeals and Nebraska Supreme Court decisions for, uh, let's see, the 24th of January, 2023. That sounds like the future still. Yeah, it, it really <laughs> it really does. It's very much the future. So we, uh, 24th on uh, Court of Appeals and 27th on Nebraska Supreme Court. And uh, Carson, would I be wrong in saying that there's a bevy of opinions this there, week? You know, it is finishing out January with a a crescendo, so to speak. What's a bevy? A bevy. Uh, well, a bevy would be a drink. I think if you were in uh, oh, maybe maybe uh, the UK, a bevy would be. <laughs> okay. But a bevy also, I guess, could be a a large number okay. or something. I'm going to look it up when you're reading something and I get bored. Yeah, and... I like that. <laughs> when, <laughs> when I bore you, when, when I put you to sleep. <laughs> when you bore me, I'll look it up and uh, we'll let everybody know. Uh, stay tuned for the exciting conclusion of what a bevy I is. I love a bevy. Ah, okay. Um, we are going through the Nebraska Supreme Court and Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions. Um, we're going to just give you kind of highlights and see what you need to look into more, be more, and what you don't. We would refer you to episode one for any disclaimers there. And let's just get started because we got a lot to do today. Yeah, let's jump right in. Uh, so starting out with a uh, not only a published opinion from the Court of Appeals on January 24th, but also a reversal. So starting out on a high note, um, this case uh, was a case coming out of Hall County uh, in Ray interest of Denzel D. Um, this was an appeal from a uh, termination of parental rights and um, denial of a guardianship. Uh, this case, essentially the facts uh, lay out this way, uh, incarcerated uh, father uh, who finds out that he is dad after he has been incarcerated. Um, during the time of incarceration, uh, father meets all of the uh, case plan goals uh, that are possible, at least while incarcerated. Um, still is incarcerated at the time of um, termination. And so at the time of termination, the court finds that the father is unable to meet the needs of the child, uh, that there has been um, out-of-home placement for uh the 12 out of 15 months, which here it was, you know, I think 25 months at this point. Um, and it essentially says that uh, even though incarceration is is not the sole factor, it is a factor, and that the best interests of the child uh, warrant termination um, and in order to fil- facilitate uh, permanency uh, for this child. Um, here the Court of Appeals takes a look at this um, and says, uh, you know, something maybe I guess doesn't stick here. Uh, the Court of, Pe- Court of Appeals talks a lot about um, the fact that Denzel did not know about uh, the son until after uh, the incarceration. Um, the fact that uh, the incarcerated father participated in all uh, services that were offered uh, showed an incredible amount of effort and commitment to meeting the uh, case plan goals. Um, that, that existed at that time and did basically everything he could uh, given the status of his incarceration. And the Court of Appeals found uh, that it was not in the best interest of the child uh, to terminate Denzel's parental rights and reversed. Uh, the other interesting piece is that the Court of Appeals reevaluated the uh, guardianship that was not granted and also reversed on those grounds, saying that this case was a case that should have resulted in a guardianship, that um, the 
process for a guardianship, which included uh, the interstate compact, uh, ICPC process uh, for uh, placement of a child uh, out of state had been completed in order to facilitate this guardianship. Um, And the Court of Appeals gives us a little nugget here where termination is not the only way to achieve permanency. And so uh, since this process was in place for the guardianship, HHS supported the guardianship. Uh, the Court of Appeals says, hey, uh, a guardianship should have happened here um, and, and is possible, and so they also reverse on those grounds. And so, um, yeah, we, get, we start out with a reversal, a good discussion of uh, even when you uh, may have an incarcerated client in a, in a juvenile case, um, if you're meeting those case plan uh, goals, if you are going through the process legitimately and engaging with services, there is still grounds uh, to maintain a parent-child relationship. Can I can I cold call you? Real yeah, quick? I would love to get cold. Oh, <laughs> here we welcome go. Welcome back. <laughs> welcome back. I'm going to cold call you. Uh, how old was the juvenile? Ooh, boy, that is a wonderful question. There. Um, and, and the reason I ask is because obviously HHS is saying um, guardianship, and the court is ultimately. Uh, siding with the the department and saying guardianship. And I think to me, if you have an out-of-state incarcerated client, you'd really kind of want to know um, what age group is maybe appropriate for a guardianship and what might be more akin towards uh, termination. So you just did the uh, professor buy me time. I appreciate that. I the did. little uh, <laughs> allude. So three. The child was three at the three time of termination. Old? Three years old. So very young. I mean, that's young for a guardianship. That I know. is young. That is young, but three. And again, I think the piece, though, here was uh, it. And that's, again, throwing in some more tidbit facts, which I guess that's what I left for readers. But you're not. I'm, I'm just going to give them the I opinion. No, there's other siblings. And oh, so they were okay. saying keeping them together. Um, and so there's a lot of facil- Exactly. Okay. And allowing to facilitate a guardianship with siblings uh, in Chicago with family. And so I think those factors tended to lend themselves. It's almost like you should look at these cases on kind of a case by case basis as to what's in the best interest of the child. Yeah, because they're very because they're very fact dependent. And so anytime that is the beauty, though, where uh, in Nebraska, we don't have a ton of appellate law. You know, anytime you can get um, cases, anytime you anytime you can get facts, that's always helpful. And so this is a case where you got a lot of facts. Sorry for dwelling on it, but I think that's an important one, uh, at least to look at if you have uh, a termination or something. Very much so. And especially if you have an incarcerated parent or a parent um, who figures out that they're uh, they are a parent post incarceration yeah. that maybe is the most important fact i here. think yeah why well, I, I heard you mention that a lot so anything else on that one no nothing else on that one okay i have anton v anton um again the facts were interesting it's a family law case uh contempt and modification uh basically the mother and father had a parenting plan before the pandemic pandemic happens um father has a job that doesn't really lend itself to um having parenting time and there's some health issues in the family. So they pause parenting time for a while for the father and the children are homeschooled by the mother and then the father gets vaccinated and then they say, okay, well, let's start back up again. Let's start having visits. Uh, Mother denies some visits and then they go through with a contempt proceeding. They, and also the father wants to modify the parenting plan. And the, the facts are, um, the mom unilaterally, this is, I think, the big factor here in this case, the mom unilaterally, unilaterally decided to move to a tiny home in Auburn, <coughs> excuse me, which the 
father described as a commune. Um, so basically it's this uh, plot of land. She's living in a mobile home that she got for $3,000 and was exchanging uh, yoga classes and $300 a month for uh, the uh, right to use, to, to own eventually this uh, mobile home. And that was in Auburn, and she didn't really tell the father about that. And she was going to homeschool, and his understanding was that, you know, the children were going to go back into Lincoln Public Schools. So uh, the, that was the contempt and then the modification. Now, what was interesting to me, at least from a pe- practitioner standpoint, is the, the court found her in contempt for moving the child and modified the parenting plan just automatically and said and and said i'm going to modify the parenting plan and the parenting plan you're going to have to comply strictly with this parenting plan mother for the next 12 months uh and or you're going to be in contempt and you could be subject to further sanctions so it was really interesting to me that the court can just and i I know that the court can modify kind of smaller parenting plan issues like okay we're going to make up that day that you missed or something like this but this is i'm going to make a new parenting plan you're going to you're going to follow it for 12 months and it wasn't exactly in on the modification. So that's so, a, a major modification. Or it, well, it's the, a it's a major sanction. Cha- yeah, yeah, it's a major sanction for it, and it's not really modifying the underlying parenting plan. It's just making it part of the purge plan. Uh, procedurally, I thought that was a little interesting. There's some good discussion uh, about when to modify a parenting plan, and you know, it leaves you with the question: Could a contempt proceeding eventually end up in a purge plan that you know lasted until the minority of the children expired but i don't know question for another case done with that one yeah that's anton uh moving on to uh it's not quite the same spelling as Novacek, like coming from uh gothenburg the, the swedish <laughs> Novacek. so i'm gonna say Novacek maybe v matheson a case coming out of uh, lincoln county this was um, a complaint um, against uh, from uh, Novasek against Matheson for uh, a breach of a, an alleged written agreement to dissolve their common law marriage. Um, and so, you know, there's a, a little bit of factual discussion regarding that. Uh, the piece that I think is kind of interesting that comes out of here, which um, again uh, comes uh, just as a, a civil practice note and exists, and I, I think sometimes we think of it but, but don't always use it, and that is uh, the right to call an opposing party's witness, uh, expert witness. And so here, uh, Novasek took issue with that and said that the expert witness had essentially uh, gained attorney-client privilege information and that um, you, know, you shouldn't be all- allowed to call this witness because of the information that uh, the expert's been able to glean. But you know, once you've disclosed that expert witness, the other party has the right to call. And so uh, you know, here, having that ability to, to call on the other party's witness for the information, you know, even if it's not great to them, and maybe that goes to you know, expert disclosures and, and how you should handle expert witness. But uh, I think that was kind of the interesting piece out of this. Did they use the word consulting expert? Did they use that? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. That's well, yeah, no. So yeah, they. I think that uh, they had talked about that um, exactly there. That that when the expert witness has been retained as a consultant, not to be called as a witness at, at trial. She was arguing that that distinction should be made, and that she argued that under those circumstances, as a consultant, that the opinions formulated by the expert witness should constitute attorney-client privilege information or work product, and should not be um, protected from disclosure. And essentially, here 
um, the Nebraska Supreme Court, and that's the the point here where it says that a party may discover facts known or opinions held by an expert who has been retained or specifically employed by another party in anticipation of litigation or preparation for trial, who is not expected to be called as a witness at trial only upon a showing of exceptional circumstances, okay. blah, blah, blah. And yeah. so here, uh, you know, they said that the, the discovery rule allowed it. So Okay, good. Yep. Anything else? Nope, that's it. State v. Soboda, criminal case, plea-based conviction. Um, not much here. Uh, there's a couple little nuggets. Uh, the uh, appeal was for excessive sentence, uh, failure of the district court to provide the defendant with a substance abuse evaluation for ordering a substance abuse evaluation as part of the pre-sentence and failing to grant a continuance when uh, the defendant wanted to go to long-term residential treatment. Um, defendant here convicted in three different counties and the kind of the global agreement was to not uh, enhance his sentences as a habitual criminal in order for him to be induced to enter pleas and no contest. He did that. And then um, the court went on to order him, I think it was 5 to 10, but I'm not 100% whether that was consecutive or not. I have to look. But um, the Court of Appeals said that the discretion within the district court was there to... Um, order the uh, substance abuse evaluation. And as far as continuances are concerned, a court does not abuse its discretion in denying a continuance unless it clearly appears that a party seeking the continuance suffered prejudice because of that denial. And further, where a criminal defendant's motion for continuance is based upon occurrence or non-occurrence of events within defendant's own control, denial of such motion is no abuse of discretion. So, And then uh, the excessive sentences was affirmed. Yeah, that's it. That's it on that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the next case that we come to from the Court of Appeals is Klein v. Klein. Uh, you know, essentially this is an unjust enrichment case uh, originating out of what seems to boil down to a family dispute regarding use of um, some grain bins and uh, one uh, family member's use of uh, these grain bins without compensation and the opinion primarily, which I guess could be interesting and useful, is um, a lot of the discussion re discussion regarding uh, the calculation of damage for use of the grain bins and how you determine that because, you know, how much was actually being used, when was it being used. You know, anybody who's farming knows that you don't have grain bins generally full year-round. You can fill them to different amounts. And so, you know, that was very, very fact-intensive and uh, dependent upon... Um, you know, what, what exactly was presented at trial. Again, not a, not a ton of nuggets of law here because this was uh, just an incredibly fact-dependent case. Uh, but if you have anything where uh, you have um, some issues regarding grain storage and calculation of damage for grain storage and unjust enrichment, you know, this may be a, a case that you want to glance at and maybe even glance at, you know, something from the underlying pleadings and opinion or uh, um, the underlying pleadings and underlying case uh, simply because it is kind of a, a niche issue. Uh, sure. But again, very, very fact dependent and, and not, not a ton of law. Gotcha. Um, next we have, I want to say the Spies v. City of Grand Island. It's a civil case involving the uh, State Tort Claims Act and municipalities. Um, these individuals had a, had a home, a residence, and they were subject to some excavation kind of activity back in 2014. Um, next to their property, they claimed that you know the water now drained in their um, in their land, and then the septic tank was damaged, and they had to drain it 
or the septic system, I guess, was damaged and they had to drain it, you know, twice, I think a month, I want to say, which seems excessive, but maybe it was a year. Anyway, um, and also that the shaking from all the excavation activity caused foundational damage to their home. They claimed uh, that they were damaged to the tune of $91,260.91, and then there was uh, an agreement to do a tap fee into the city's water main, uh, and they had to pay $7,500 for that. But anyway... um, you're wondering why are we talking about a 2014 case? It's 2023, nearly nine years later. Well, things ended in um, 2016. The excavation ended, and then they filed the the letter under the State Tort Claims Act, and then they litigated it, and they lost on summary. Or they won on summary judgment. The plaintiffs did, and that was before the summary judgment rules changed. Um, and then the city filed another summary judgment based on, you know, some more information. And then the plaintiffs here, they failed to provide a uh, index of evidence or a statement of disputed facts. So the court took all the facts that the city of Grand Island was uh, alleging in their statement of uh, undisputed facts as true. And if they took those statement of undisputed facts as true, then um, the individuals doing the excavation work were independent contractors and you know the city doesn't have any liability so case dismissed that's what happened here uh plaintiffs appeal and the uh, court of appeals here said no nope. uh, they followed the rules and um under those rules those are the trial court has discretion to find that there weren't any undisputed tra- uh, facts under this and find that the summary judgment should be granted so that's what the court did perfect yep the last uh, court of appeals opinion that I have is State v. Milne, we'll say, M-I-L-N-E. Um, this was a uh, appeal from a criminal uh, conviction coming out of uh, Madison County. The primary issue here uh, was the appeal from um, a motion for absolute discharge due to a speedy trial issue. Uh, Milne had alleged that uh, there there was not a speedy trial at the time that a waiver of uh, speedy trial or a, a waiver of jury trial occurred, and the matter was set for a uh, bench trial. That uh, the the uh, speedy trial clock had already ran, and that uh, the case should have been uh, discharged. The uh, district court found that there had been uh, multiple continuances at the uh, request of the defendant, and therefore uh, there was no speedy trial issue, and that was um, not something that that should uh, result in an absolute discharge. The interesting piece from there is that the Court of Appeals is unable to address the speedy trial issue on appeal because um, Milne failed to uh, timely appeal, and uh, again, just those things that percolate what is a final appealable order. And here the Court of Appeals, uh, again, articulates that when the district court denied the motion for absolute discharge, that was the final appealable order. Uh, there was 30 days to appeal that order. That didn't happen. Therefore, it wasn't timely. Therefore, they can't address uh, the speedy trial issue, even if um, it should have occurred at the appellate level. And so um, they de- they deny that, and then there was an um, ineffective assistance of counsel and excessive sentence uh, claim, which were um, fairly uh, straightforward. Nice. Okay. The last one here is a very short. It's a uh, juvenile case, 
termination of parental rights, the very fact-specific um, kind of case. Uh, I didn't see much law here, and the court ended up uh, affirming the termination of the parental rights after going through uh, the analysis that's uh, for unfitness and best interest. There's some, you know, connection between the unfitness and, and best interest, but that's uh, nothing new. Um, so that's where you're at. Okay. And so now I believe we get to the Supreme Court opinions from January 27th, That's right? correct, yep. All right. And so starting out at Ashford v. Uh, Roses, either Roses or Rosas, uh, this is a uh, case regarding an attorney-client dispute, um, essentially that uh, arose from the uh, attorney uh, ending the attorney-client relationship and then demanding uh, some payment uh, for unpaid fees. Uh, allegedly, the um, the client then uh, does a couple of things. One, sends a letter demanding an accounting, and um, two, uh, which is the underlying issue with the uh, civil suit, makes a, a bad uh, Google review and uh, essentially disparages the uh, work of the attorney and the attorney itself. Uh, Ashford files suit based on the Google review uh, in two separate uh, lawsuits. There's a fairly intensive discussion of various pretrial motions in both lawsuits. Um, and eventually it's found out that the uh, post on Google was actually made by the client's aunt um, and that this defamation claim was uh, time barred. And the interesting uh, piece here is uh, discuss discussion regarding uh, both service by uh, publication and then when the statute of limitations runs on um, on publications like this for the Google post. And so there's a long discussion regarding the single publication rule. So the tort rule uh, regarding if you have a bunch of internet posts that it's treated as one single publication for uh, the running of the statute of limitations. Um, and so again, great discussion regarding the single publication rule. And if you have something like this where it might uh, lend to some sort of defamation uh, lawsuit. And essentially this rule says that any communication that is made at approximately one time, such as a television broadcast or a single edition of a book or a newspaper or periodical is construed as a single publication of statements it contains and it gives rise to only one cause of action. And so that's when the uh, time period begins to run. And so the district court found that this time period had ran prior to the 2020 lawsuit, which gave uh, service by publication would have given no notice to uh, the aunt who actually made the uh, Google post or aunt, aunt or aunt, don't aunt, know which one. aunt, aunt. or aunt, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, that that would have been the post that actually gave rise to the action, and so therefore it was time-barred. And then there's also one other interesting piece, which is uh, recusal of a judge. There was uh, various motions for recusal, um, and for a standard on recu recusal, you must overcome a presumption of uh, judicial impartiality, and the standard is that a reasonable person who knew the circumstances would question the judge's impartiality under an objective standard of reasonableness, and then it's uh, looked at under an abuse of discretion um, standard of review. And so this, everything was affirmed and, um, and that's how they disposed of it. There you go. Okay. Um, anything else on that one? Nothing else on that one. All right, here we go. We got Schaefer v. Frakes. Uh, this is a, uh, inmate appeal under section 1983 of the federal code and the administrative procedures act. Um, interesting facts, um, to a certain extent, uh, a juvenile at the time back in 1977, was sentenced to life imprisonment um, for a first-degree murder in Hall County. 
and then subsequently sentenced to um, 20 or 12 to 40 years uh, from an assault in Lancaster County in 1983, and then another assault um, from Lancaster County in 1979 uh, prior to that. So his ultimate, uh, the Department of Correctional Services viewed his sentence as life plus 13 to 42 years. Now, uh, in 2012, here comes Miller v. Alabama uh, from the United States Supreme Court that says, well, you can't um, have juveniles be sentenced to life. So that vacated his sentence and he had to be resentenced. Now he's being resentenced under different good time laws, different good time everything. So it becomes really kind of uh, a question as to whether he should be released, frankly, now, um, around now, or up until 2033, and then there was another calculation that said 2043 based on those calculations. It's kind of a procedural issue uh, as far as the appeal is concerned because they're dealing with whether this is a collateral attack um, to the underlying sentence that when he was resentenced, whether this is a collateral attack for that claiming a uh, you know constitutional violation. So the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court finds that it is actually uh, precluded and they should have brought it up in the direct appeal following the second sentence that they they dismissed uh, the uh, second appeal following the second sentence. So um, it should have been brought up there and you can't use 1983 actions um, to uh, attack the, there's a, there's a case here that says you can't do that. Uh, you can't attack the duration of confinement um, it was barred by a Wilkinson case, Wilkinson v. Dotson, and that's a United States Supreme Court case, 544 U.S. 74, 2005 case. So, so anyway. you can't circumvent the uh, direct appeals process with the 1983. Not to attack your time one. of in confinement. confinement. Yeah, if they got the confinement wrong, you got to do that on a direct appeal. At least that's what they say today. Um, okay. I don't know what they would have said in 77. You know, uh, I guess I'm going to be <laughs> I honest. Yeah, I wouldn't have been there. Look at that. <laughs> so anyway, that uh, is Schaefer v. Frakes. Okay. Uh, next case is State v. Miranda. Uh, this is an appeal from a conviction of first-degree murder and use of a deadly weapon to commit a felony. Uh, the two grounds for appeal primarily are insufficiency of evidence and ineffective assistance of counsel. The insufficiency of evidence uh, generally uh, goes to uh, the um, underlying mens rea for uh, first-degree murder, so whether or not it was purposeful, uh, deliberate, premeditated. Uh, and essentially the discussion here goes around, and it's, again, very factual, but the fact that this may be proven circumstantially that this happened in this case, that there was plenty of evidence to circumstantially show that it was in, indeed uh, first-degree murder and was purposeful, deliberate, and premeditated. Um, and then the ineffective assistance of counsel claim uh, surrounds some some of the process and procedure during uh, voir dire and, and uh, how that uh, happened. And here again, the, the standard that the Supreme Court gives us is that uh, Miranda's counsel, uh, we cannot say that Miranda's counsel had an unreasonable strategic purpose in how he addressed the jury or, what his or that his performance was uh, deficient. And so here again, uh, when it comes to things like voir dire or uh, cross-examining witnesses, you know, any of that that's generally something that our Supreme Court isn't going to reevaluate. We aren't going. We aren't going to uh, look back on strategic decisions and say, uh, you know, that performance was deficient purely for uh, doing something that the defendant disagrees with. Excellent. 
Anything else on that one? I don't think so. I I do have something that you that you mentioned that I want to get to the bottom of. Yeah. Um, I have multiple different opinions from all over the state and nation on how to pronounce. Yes, exactly. Vaudier, Vaudier, Vaudier. I mean. That's a great question, isn't it? Jury selection you know, pra- is how you re- <laughs> <laughs> as practitioners we might might want to actually go. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to admit I, I say it. I say voidier. That's that's yeah. What it I rolls grew off the with. tongue easier. It's easier, and, but down south, I think it's voidier. Voidier. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> please, someone give me a definitive answer on that. Yeah, I would love to know too. I've, I've point me towards it. Exactly. Let's let's yeah. figure this out, and let's it, it probably conclusion. depends on whatever your judge calls it. I would imagine. Yeah, right? true. I'll just follow them. That's uh, generally what I do anyway. Yeah. So, judge, how do you say that? <laughs> whatever, whatever the person in the black robe says goes. You know, happy judge. Happy life, life rule. There, exactly. You, well, Never make someone mad who can throw you in jail. Well, there, well take that one to the bank. <laughs> <sighs> there are instances where you know reasonable minds can differ. But anyway, here we go. Uh, last case. For me, anyway, uh, William P. versus Jamie P. It's a protection order case. A father wanted to get a protection order from his daughter. Uh, the daughter didn't show up for the um, protection order hearing. And then the daughter appealed following not showing up to the protection order hearing and didn't file a precipe for a bill of exceptions. Um, so she asked eventually for a bill of exceptions to be uh, ordered out of time and prepared out of time. The court of, uh, whoever was handling this, it might've been the court of appeals at the time, but the appellate court denied, um, supplanting the record with the, uh, new bill of exceptions. So they were just left with the transcript and in the transcript, um, there was no evidence to show that, uh, the return, the sheriff's return uh, of the protection order didn't happen, and it's you know the sheriff's return of service is presumed to be correct, um, and the absence of anything contra- contrary, it may be presumed that public officers faithfully perform their official duties, and that absent evidence showing misconduct or disregard of law, the regularity of official acts is presumed. So, um, based on the lack of billing of exceptions and the presumption that uh, you know government workers do their work. Um, the court or the Nebraska Supreme Court affirmed the protection order, and uh, that's where it is. So, just to clarify, it was the person wanting to contest the protection order hearing that failed to show up for that whatever you know. Failed to show, there was yeah. a show cause hearing yeah. after after she was allegedly after you served, filed the or yep. presumably served. I guess we could say so. Presumably served, and then um, didn't didn't show up for didn't the order. Contest it. Okay. And there you go. Okay. Uh, so the last case I believe we have today is NRA Interest of KC, uh, who was alleged to be a development developmentally disabled and um, individual and a threat of uh, posed a threat of harm to others. Uh, state the state of Nebraska here had filed a per, a petition pursuant to the Developmental Dis- Disabilities Court Ordered Custody Act. That's a mouthful. The DDCCA uh, seeking court-ordered custody and treatment for KC um, after the uh, district court had made the uh, findings required by statute that KC uh, was an individual who was developmentally disabled and a threat of and posed a threat of harm to um, others. Uh, there uh, was a court-ordered evaluation um, and preparation plan uh, ordered, um, but it had not yet ordered involuntary custody, and um, there also had been no determination regarding uh, present custody or treatment um, to be imposed. Uh, at that point in time, uh, KC files uh, for an appeal um, and asks uh, the uh, 
appellate courts to take a look at this. Uh, eventually, the Supreme Court finds that this was not an, a final appealable order um, and dismissed for uh, lack of jurisdiction. I will say uh, there's a couple of um, different interesting pieces here that are good for uh, discussion. One uh, is the discussion of the Developmental Disabilities uh, Court-Ordered Custody Act, uh, the DDCCA. Uh, there's a discussion there of exactly what that is, how that works procedurally, which, I, again, I think is an interesting piece should you ever have anything that arises under that. Uh, essentially, it's a three-part three process. First, the state files a petition alleging that uh, they are in need of court-ordered custody and treatment for, the, for an individual. Then there's an adjudication process, and then finally a disposition phase. Uh, Casey here... Um, was already found uh, not competent in a parallel criminal case. So then the state files this DDCCA um, petition. There's an adjudication. Um, so the, a hearing on that petition for civil commitment, the judge here finds, uh, again, that that KC uh, was developmentally disabled, was the threat of harm. But then prior to the submission of this plan, uh, a.k.a. the disposition process, that's when KC appeals. Uh, here the Supreme Court says that, you know, there may be a, an ability to appeal at that phase, but there wasn't in this case because KC had not been ordered to be committed and uh, there wasn't any sort of emergency custody at that time, and therefore there was no substantial right that was being affected uh, because there was no uh, commitment. And so so just the fact that there was a determination that Casey was a person who was in need of custody wasn't enough. Uh, the fact that Casey uh, was not in custody at that point in time was not a substantial right. Um, and again, the standard there was uh, Casey was not being deprived of liberty. Uh, this simply was allowing for a plan to determine custody and treatment. Um, and so therefore, they dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. There you go. There we go. Anything else on that one? Nothing else on that one. Well, you know what? That was a bevy. That was a bevy. That was a bevy of decisions that we went over, and uh, a bevy, a bevy, is yeah. defined as a large group of people or things or things of a particular kind, and a uh, it could also mean a group of birds, particularly quail. Wow! Did you know that? No, I always thought it was a covey. It's, it says quail, a, a bevy a of quail. A gaggle of geese, a covey a gaggle, of quail, a, a, murder, gag, a murder of crows. Yes. And then bevy is slang in the UK for an alcoholic beverage. Look at that. There you go. Point two Law Review brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. Um, I'm John Brandt. I'm Carson Messersmith. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody, for sticking around with us.